Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Software security logs are crucial to investigating cyber incidents. Well, now the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has been urging companies, vendors, to make their logs available to their customers, the government, at no extra charge. Well, now one of the government's biggest technology vendors plans to, in fact, provide agencies with free logging services. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. First of all, what are agencies going to get under this new arrangement and from whom? Of course, yes, starting this month, Microsoft will automatically enable logging capabilities for all federal agencies. Microsoft says it will increase the amount of logging data uh, by up to 10 times in some cases. And the company will also increase the default log retention period from 90 to 180 days. Now, this is all reached under a deal with CISA, the White House Office of Management and Budget, and the Office of the National Cyber Director, uh, along with Microsoft, kind of uh, had been working over the last six months to work on what the company could make available for free. And CISA says these logging capabilities will help agencies meet their requirements under Office of Management and Budget uh, directives for log management. And that was really important in the wake of the software supply chain attack on SolarWinds. For one, many agencies struggled to detect that intrusion because they lacked the necessary network logs. And now, at least in the case of these Microsoft logs, they'll have some more capabilities. And these are logs of Microsoft company that are being generated by the customers using their cloud services, basically? Yeah, the, these logs specifically pertain to uh, how uh, customer users are accessing email and then how the users are uh, working within SharePoint and Exchange. And so essentially, these event logs show when something might be anomalous or unusual about how a user is accessing an email system at the State Department, for instance, or something like that. Microsoft says these will allow uh, basically the users to detect business email compromise, one of the biggest types of cyber attacks, as well as advanced nation state threats, and then even insider risks, which is, of course, a big deal in government. So agencies feel they can use these logs. And so how will they receive them? And what will they do with them once they get them? Well, CISA and Microsoft have also released an expanded cloud log implementation playbook to describe in detail just that, how agencies can use these logs going forward. Uh, you know, the, these new default logging capabilities will be made available uh, as default. So agencies in some cases won't have to do anything. And then they'll just have to figure out how they're going to use these logs and analyze them to support threat hunting and incident response operations. All right. And how did we get to this point? Because I remember it took the government 20 years of back and forth with Microsoft before Microsoft agreed to even share occasionally small parts of its source code. Yeah, it's been an interesting saga over the last few years. Microsoft has received some criticism for charging its customers for logging capabilities. Uh, there have been a couple flashpoints. I mentioned the SolarWinds hack. That was one of them. After that 2020 incident, there was a 2021 hearing where uh, lawmakers grilled Microsoft President uh, Brad Smith 
on Microsoft's involvement in, in that incident uh, because some of their services were compromised. Congressman Jim Langevin, a former Congressman Jim Langevin, he actually challenged Smith about charging extra for logging, asking, is this a profit center for Microsoft? And Smith responded, we are a for-profit company. Everything we do is designed to generate a return. But at the same time, Microsoft made some logs available by default for agencies after that incident. Fast forward to last summer, hackers aligned with China were able to steal emails from the unclassified Microsoft accounts of Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and some high-level State Department officials. And again, these were Microsoft services. After that incident, CISA said it would work with Microsoft to expand free logging capabilities. Now they're available for free to all federal agencies. I should point out, Microsoft still does charge for premium level logging services, so they're not giving away the whole kitchen sink here. Well, logging is something that happens automatically as software is used, so it's really sort of a transmission, gathering, and moving from point A to point B process. It's not as if they're generating data that wasn't being generated already, so I guess you could look at it really both ways. And CISA, of course, has the overall charge of increasing software security as it also works to increase people's cyber readiness. Does this help them with that effort, software security itself? Yeah, this, this is a pretty big development for CISA's secure by design efforts. Last year, CISA really launched this program in earnest to encourage fraud or even shame, in some cases, the technology industry to make their products a little bit more secure by design. And the guidance that CISA has put out actually explicitly calls out how providers should supply high-quality audit logs to customers at no extra charge. So CISA says this is a good step in the right direction with Microsoft making some logging available at no additional charge. And tell us more about the Secure by Design effort. That sounds like a pretty big, broad-based work they're trying to do there. Yeah, it is a big, broad-based work. It's not wholly focused on just government technology vendors. It's focused on the biggest technology vendors writ large and really focusing them on putting security in place earlier in the design phase of technology rather than just focusing on the vulnerabilities and incidents that customers have to deal with as they crop up. CISA put out uh, the second draft of its Secure by Design software white paper in December, and the window for commenting on that white paper actually just closed last week. So we can expect to see CISA putting out some new updates uh, in the coming months on that work. They're also focusing a lot on pushing out what are called secure by design alerts that call out specific practices that technology manufacturers could take to make their products more secure. So there's a lot of activity going on at CISA on the secure by design work. I, my question is, is it even possible to have secure by design? Because the nature of software means somebody will find a way to hack it no matter what you do. Yeah, I think that's right. I think CISA officials have acknowledged that. And the point that they're trying to make in, in many cases we're seeing is that there are some baseline level things that companies can do to at least raise the bar. For those hackers, uh, multi-factor authentication is a big one. We hear a lot about, especially in agencies. Uh, and then eliminating recurring classes of vulnerabilities that we know are responsible for the vast majority of cyber incidents. These things, in some cases, cost money, of course. That's why companies don't necessarily do them by default. So CISA has actually been focusing a lot on the economics of security and asking questions about, hey, how does this cost money? How can we address the economic side of this issue? 
And getting back to the logging issues with logs coming in from Microsoft, what will be the distribution architecture? Will they send them to CISA and CISA will then distribute them to the agencies or is it direct from Microsoft to the agencies? This is a direct to the agencies. This is a customer issue. And, you know, every agency has a different process for, you know, detecting cyber incidents and investigating and remediating them. But each agency will have to kind of figure out how they're going to use these increased capabilities going forward. And CISA will probably be on the agencies to say, well, use them, guys, since we managed to negotiate, you're getting them. Yeah, I think so. I think that's going to be a big deal for agencies. If they're not taking advantage of these, they're going to be called out. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance 
And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this 
particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.